0: Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. You are in the cave. The Christmas cave. We were born before the wind. Also younger than the sun. And our monitor boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the soulful terrain on the far side of conventional religion. If it's your tradition, Merry Christmas. If not, soulful blessings in this dark season of pregnant possibility. This episode of The Mystic Cave is neither a conversation nor a reflection. It is instead A story I wrote it almost 20 years ago now one Christmas that was dark indeed my marriage had ended my children were with their mother and I had Christmas Eve services to lead at my church when I sat down to try and write a Christmas sermon nothing came there were lots of things to preach about The Christmas story is overflowing with homiletic possibilities from the inn where there was no room to the cruel machinations of powerful rulers to, of course, the birth of a baby against all odds in the midst of it all. But I didn't want to try to make sense of it. Not that year. I just wanted to hear the story again for myself, if not for the sake of my congregation. And the way to hear it afresh was to rewrite it which is what I did then when the time came I simply read the story rather than trying to preach it I can't recall people saying very much at the door afterward except for the person who complained that that was not what they expected to hear from the pulpit on a Christmas Eve well maybe you won't have the same expectations after all this isn't a sermon it's just a story called Christmas in a Car Wash. They limped into town in a 1965 Rambler station wagon. The car, 30 years old now, should have been an antique. It should have been worth something. But over the years, a string of owners had been hard on it, each one thinking they were driving it into the ground. Now it was little more than a bucket of corroded nuts and bolts, its rusted, pock-marked side panels held together by duct tape, the engine kept running by infusions of oil and the frequent laying on of hands. Joey hoped it would hold together just long enough to get them back to Calgary. But they'd already had to stop twice since Moose Jaw, once to see if he could coax some heat out of the thing, and then again when the engine's ticking sound grew so loud, Joey thought a piston was going to burst right through the hood. He topped her up with oil one more time and prayed for just another few miles. He resented having to make this trip at all. But the only way they were going to let him apply for social assistance in Saskatchewan was if he came back and tied up the loose ends of his failed carpentry business in Alberta. He hadn't filed for bankruptcy. He'd just walked away. He hadn't known what else to do. Now he had to return and set things right, or they were never going to get on their feet. And he was soon to be a father. So that made his responsibilities in the matter even clearer. Joey glanced over at Marie. She was wrapped in a blanket, slumped against the passenger door, her head wedged between the window and the seat. He couldn't tell if she was awake or asleep. Beneath her heavy coat, out of sight, was the proud, restless bulge that held their child. She had put up with so much, yet she never complained. Her courage in all they'd been through, her confidence that things would work out, that he'd figure things out, fortified his own. In spite of everything, he felt more like a man now than he ever had, as if somehow, though he couldn't see things clearly, it was all going to be okay. As long as he didn't panic, as long as he just took one step at a time. The next step, as the Rambler coughed and lurched through the city's west end, was to find a place to spend the night. But that was going to be hard, this being Christmas Eve. He had already driven past the ritzier places and the recognizable hotel chains, not even bothering to pull in and ask. He knew they'd be too much. If the Rambler could make it just a little further— He knew that at the edge of town, there was a string of small independent motels. They just might be able to handle that. He looked again at Marie. You all right? he asked her. She nodded. Are we there yet? We'll see, he said. I'm going to try and find a place somewhere along here. What he wasn't telling her was that every motel they passed, and even the shabby ones, displayed a no vacancy sign. Every last one. The city utility crew was making the best of it. Having to work the night shift was bad enough. But Christmas Eve? There had been a broken water main earlier in the evening, which almost justified their being out. But now there was just this dark, interminable waiting... They had been back to Tim Hortons three or four times already, so the coffee was keeping them awake. Charlie, behind the wheel of their service truck, pulled a flask from the breast pocket of his reflective vest. He waved it in front of the other two as if he were making them an offer. Then he uncapped it and took a swig himself. "'You drinking again, Charlie?' Enrique asked him, as much an observation as a question." He adjusted his position on the bench, seat squeezed in tight between Charlie and Bert. Enrique went to AA three meetings a week, sometimes more. He'd been dry for 13 years, a fact he was proud of. He had taken many of his buddies to the meetings. Some credited him with saving their lives. But he was not one to preach. He knew a person had to be ready, had to want to change. Bert glanced over at the two of them, They were jammed in too close for things to start getting tense. It's Christmas, was all Charlie said, and he knocked back another. Officially, the party at the faculty lounge had ended hours ago. The revelers who remained were those who had no reason to leave— There was no one waiting for them at home. Ruth was a full professor in the religious studies department. Her divorce had come through back in the summer, and according to the separation agreement, the children were spending their first Christmas away from her, up in Edmonton, with her ex and his so-called fiance. Ruth had other words for her. She took a long drag on her cigarette and blew the smoke absently into the face of Hector, who taught in the computer science department. He never had to be anywhere. His face was too close to hers, his breath was bad, and he was launched into a monologue about his courses for the new term. It had been a mistake to ask, she thought. Then again, nothing more was required of her now. Across the room, alone, stood Winston. Empty glass in hand, gazing through his reflection out the darkened window. God, he was good looking. Why was he here? She wondered. He was a popular lecturer in humanities and always seemed to have adoring young female students following him around. How could it be that he was alone at Christmas? Ruth surveyed the rest of the room. The music had died long ago. A few conversations lingered in quiet corners. Plastic beer cups and overflowing ashtrays proved to be the most durable of the festive decorations. So was this to be her new family, Ruth wondered? These bright and promising minds, these lost souls? What was it they were all looking for anyway? She butted out her cigarette, excused herself from Hector, who was mid-sentence, rose and crossed the room toward Winston. I'm so sorry, Marie, Joey said. I I, I don't know what else to do. This'll be all right, Marie said. Why don't you just hold me? He slid across the seat and put his arm around her shoulders, and she leaned into him. He stroked her hair and gazed around in disbelief at their shelter for the night. A stall in Big Bill's dog and car wash barn. The buzzing glow of the overhead lights making everything harsh and surreal. It was all the motel could offer them, this being the middle of the night and all their rooms taken. At least the place was heated, sort of. Joey put his head back and closed his eyes. Images from the day played before him. The hoarfrost clinging to the power lines and fence posts as they'd headed out that morning. The low-gliding hawk with its white underbelly, who seemed to take an interest in their journey and followed them a while, swooping low over the car. The images soon began dissolving into memories of longer ago, of indistinct moments when great decisions were made, life courses set he allowed himself to sink into sleep until he was jolted awake by Marie at his side. Wild-eyed, she was digging her fingers into his arm. Oh, God, Joey, she was crying. Oh, God. Ruth caught the sight out of the corner of her eye. "'A glow in the sky, a soft explosion of light. "'Look,' she said out loud. "'The three of them had fallen silent in the darkness of Ruth's car, "'waiting for the engine to warm up so she could drive them home. "'They had run out of conversation, and also out of steam. "'Winston was slouched in the passenger seat, "'his camel-hair coat wrapped around him, "'his arms crossed, his gloves tucked into his armpits. "'His head was tilted back over the headrest.' He followed her gaze without lifting his head. "'Northern lights, Ruth,' he said. "'That's all. Nice, though.' Hector leaned forward from the back seat, placing his face between them. "'That's not the Aurora Borealis,' he said. "'It's too close. Check the proximity, people. "'That's coming from—' "'Where is that? Boness?" "'Let's go see,' Ruth said. "'Excuse me,' Winston raised his wrist to his face "'and pulled back the sleeve of his coat.' What time is it? he said, squinting at the phosphorescent glow of his watch. I hate to be a party pooper, but... Ruth put the car in gear and spun it round in the deserted parking lot. Winston sat up. Hector in the back seat snapped his seatbelt buckle into place. They were following the light. Charlie thought it was a choir. Bert suggested it was more likely the brandy talking, and they all laughed. But they all heard it. An unearthly hum off in the distance. Perhaps something electrical, like a transformer. But a hum that seemed almost to be arranging itself in harmonic parts, oscillating, the patterns shifting. Bert rolled down his window. Are we near a church or something? The others shook their heads. Let's check it out, Charlie said. Could be trouble. The other two were less certain. I don't know, Bert said. How much time we got left? We could just phone it in, Enrique offered. Should you really be driving anyway? No, really, Charlie said, straightening up. We should check this out. He slipped the flask back into his pocket and put the truck into gear. Where's it coming from? He asked the others. They all listened. It seemed to be coming from everywhere surrounding them. But then, they saw the glow. Don't panic, Joey told himself. Don't panic. Just one step at a time. Okay, I'm going to find someone to help us, he said to Marie, trying to sound calm. I'm just going to be gone for a minute, okay? But Marie grabbed at his arm as her body convulsed again. Her eyes squeezed shut and her mouth opened, but no sound came. Okay, he couldn't leave her. Joey let Marie cling to him until her breath returned. Then he reached around, stretching out his body to sweep the detritus from the back seat. No, that wouldn't do. He got out of the car, removed his fleece lined jacket, and smoothed it out across the back seat. Then he helped Marie from the front seat into the back, where there would be more room. Again, her body convulsed, and now he could see for himself. It was time. The utility crew was the first to arrive. The hum grew louder as they approached Big Bill's dog and car wash barn, sounding more like voices now, but ethereal voices, not quite human. They could hear it even after Bert rolled up his window. It seemed to be everywhere. The glow had grown as well. And it had something to do with this car wash place. Why would the lights be on at this time of night and on Christmas Eve? Was it still open? No, just that one stall. The automatic doors rolled up as they approached. Charlie stopped the truck and turned off the ignition. For a moment, the three sat where they were, uncertain of what was happening, of what they were doing here. The light coming from the stall was blinding, as if they had stumbled upon a movie set. The voices were swirling all around them now. Charlie climbed down from the truck and took several steps toward the light, but his legs gave out and he found himself kneeling on the cold concrete. He couldn't see it, but on the other side of the truck, the same thing had happened to Bert and Enrique. As they knelt at the entrance to Big Bill's dog and car wash barn, their eyes slowly adjusted to the light and the hum seemed to recede. Finding their strength, They rose unsteadily to their feet and entered the stall. There they found themselves gazing upon a scene of the strangest tranquility. Through the open rear door of a 1965 Rambler station wagon, a young man with bare shoulders was lying across the back seat holding in his arms a woman wrapped in a blanket who was cradling in her arms a newborn infant swaddled in what appeared to be a white shirt. Charlie tried to speak, but nothing came out. He opened his hands in an offer of help. The man in the car nodded towards the woman who seemed to be in discomfort. Without thinking, Charlie felt for the flask in the pocket of his vest. Approaching with reverence, he knelt at the rambler's open door and offered his gift. Enrique returned to the truck to radio for assistance. Ruth drove up to Big Bill's dog and car wash barn just as the city utility vehicle was pulling away. "'You're driving us through a car wash?' Winston asked. "'It's not that kind of place,' Hector corrected him. "'It's not automatic. It's self-serve. You have to wash it yourself.' Winston squinted over his shoulder in Hector's direction, then back at Ruth. "'What are we doing, Ruth?' But she was already getting out of the car and walking toward the light." The two men exchanged a glance, and then they got out and followed behind her. As Winston and Hector entered the glow of the stall, they saw the Rambler and several figures, but only as dark silhouettes against a brilliant backdrop. Uncertain, they paused. But Ruth's voice drew them in. Come here, guys, she said. It's all right. As they approached and surveyed the strange sight before them, unaccountably, But instinctively, both Winston and Hector reached down and pulled off their shoes. They dropped them in a small pile beside Ruth's. She turned to them. She was holding a baby, wrapped in a man's white shirt, inside the folds of her coat, against her breast. Tears glistened in her eyes. "'It's a baby,' she said. "'They need me to hold their baby.' Joey stepped out from behind Ruth, a young man on a cold winter's night wearing only an undershirt, but smiling. An ambulance was on its way, he said. Winston removed his camel hair coat and offered it to Joey, helping to drape it around the young man's shoulders. Hector was fixed on the infant sleeping in Ruth's arms. Do you want to hold him? Joey asked the man. My wife here is not doing so well. Marie opened her eyes and nodded her approval. "'Please,' she said, and forced a smile. "'Do I have to give him up?' Ruth laughed through her tears. "'What's his name?' "'Emmanuel,' Joey and Marie said in unison. "'Emmanuel,' Ruth smiled with recognition. "'God is with us.' "'Joey nodded. I guess,' he said. "'Ruth addressed Winston and Hector without lifting her gaze from the child. "'Gentlemen?' Winston, Hector, this is Emmanuel. Now, come in closer. Let me show you how to hold him. In the distance, a siren rang out its song of hope. ¶¶ you've enjoyed my story, Christmas in a Car Wash. And I hope you are enjoying all the blessings of the season. Sometimes those blessings come to us through the enduring traditions that pick us up and carry us through. Sometimes those blessings come as surprises and even as little miracles. Either way, I hope this has been a blessing. Thank you for listening. Next time, we take an unexpected turn here in the cave as we consider soulful haberdashery. How do our sartorial choices both express and inform the life of soul? What does our outer appearance say about our inner state? Conversely, how is our inner state affected by our outer appearance? To help me unravel the mysteries of our soulful threads, my guest will be my friend Barry Foster, the best-dressed man in churchland. He knows a thing or two about snappy dressing, and he knows a great deal about soul. I hope you'll join us. I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. But it's too late. now